Welcome to a special episode of the Passing Judgment Podcast, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am excited to say that Producer Joe is back. We are going to do a quick wrap-up of the Supreme Court term. If you're interested in diving a little bit more deeply into some of these cases, we actually have special episodes dedicated just to some of the bigger decisions. But today we're going to give you a higher level overview so you're ready for your next virtual cocktail party, uh, socially distanced dinner, and you can talk about all the things that happened in the Supreme Court and most important for people listening to this podcast, how they affect your daily life. Producer Joe Armstrong, welcome back. Hello, Jessica Levinson. How are you? I'm like a bad penny. Keep coming up. Can't get rid of me. You are a shiny penny, and we are happy to have you back. And we get really nice feedback about the episodes between that's the two of us. So. That's what I hear. It's nice to be loved. That's that's uh, that's what I will say, especially by you. So let's uh, let's let's jump into this. Such an interesting Supreme Court term. They're always interesting in their own way. I'm sure folks like yourself who have made this your life's work would say so. Uh, but 62 cases had decisions issued this term. I looked this up. The average is 76, so their batting average is a little down. Uh, but given uh, pandemics, etc., you know. Yeah, they pushed some cases. I mean, as loyal listeners know, the Supreme Court was set to hear oral arguments in March and April. We were all set right. to have our lives continue in March and April. COVID happened, and then they pushed a bunch of cases off to next term, heard some cases that couldn't be pushed off or they didn't want to be pushed off over the phone in May. And that's how we got a late Supreme Court term. That's why we're talking to you in mid-July doing a Supreme Court wrap-up. Yeah, yeah. Normally these things, I mean, I can remember, uh, you know, working in the news business for some time. You know, June is SCOTUS season. That's when all the big juicy, uh, you know, the big gay marriage decisions, the big things that change our society, they always come out in June and then makes big news. And it's interesting, too, because that's that's when the news cycle is starting to slow down a little bit, generally speaking, for the summer. So it's nice to have that little bump, that little adrenaline shot of something about which to argue with your uncle, getting ready for Thanksgiving every year. So, you know, gives you plenty of time to get all your things together, like you were saying. So let's, let's, let's get into this. Let's get into this. Um, the big ones, you know, I feel like we should do one of those, like tell them what, tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them. But let's just jump right in with abortion. There's some uh, key things about abortion. Tell me about this one. This is June Medical. Yeah, this is a case called June Medical. And the law at issue was a Louisiana law. And it essentially said to abortion providers, you have to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. Now, people who listen to legal podcasts, follow the news, will say, didn't the court already rule on this case? And the answer is they ruled on an identical law out of Texas four years ago. There was a case called Whole Woman's Health, and in that case, a Texas law said two things. But for our purposes, the important one is, if you perform abortion, you need to have admitting privileges in a local hospital. In that case, the court split five to four with then Justice Anthony Kennedy in the majority, and they said, no, these restrictions do not serve any purpose of Um, serving women's health. There's no medical goal that's achieved here. And in fact, this is an undue burden. That's the legal standard for abortion restrictions. This is an undue burden on a woman's ability to obtain an abortion. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts dissents in that Texas case from 2016. What happens? Anthony Kennedy retires from the court 
He's replaced by his more conservative former clerk, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And the, as I said, almost the identical case comes back up in front of the Supreme Court. The court takes the case and people are thinking, what is going to happen? Is Chief Justice John Roberts going to vote according to his vote in the last case where he basically says, I'm okay with these restrictions? Or is he going to acknowledge that the court just decided this case and that it has to adhere to prior precedent? And the answer is Chief Justice John Roberts, being the institutionalist that he is, caring that we respect the judiciary, writes a separate opinion. The court was divided four to four. Chief Justice John Roberts writes a separate opinion, which basically says, I have no choice. We just decided this case, but as a personal matter, I am still comfortable with these restrictions, but I have to adhere to prior Supreme Court precedent. And in it, and this is the thing that listeners have to look for in the coming years, I think he waters down the standard that we use to evaluate abortion restrictions, which is another way of saying, I think he's trying to lay the groundwork to make it easier to restrict access to abortion in the future. Yeah, it seems to me that these sorts of cases coming out of different states are merely the conservative, uh, you know, relentless assault on trying to chip away at Roe v. Wade. Like little by little by little, at some point, they get enough justices on the court and a court, you know, a, a specific case takes enough time to work its way up through the judiciary. And then that falls. That seems to me that that's what this is. Am I correct in my assessment? Yeah. So I think what one thing is we always say Roe versus Wade, but the current standard that we use to evaluate restrictions on abortion access is actually a case from 1992 called Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And the standard is, does this restriction create an undue burden on a woman's ability to obtain an abortion? What's an undue burden? It's whatever five members, at least five members of the Supreme Court say it is. There's no bright line rule. There's no ultimate definition. And so whenever we talk about the Supreme Court, one of the first things that people think about is abortion rights. And people always say, is Roe v. Wade going to be overturned? The better question is, will the court allow so many restrictions that it's basically death by a thousand paper cuts to the Casey standard, that we still say there's a constitutional right to obtain access to an abortion, but that there's so many restrictions that states can put in place that depending on where women live, it's really just a hollow right that practically speaking, they don't have the ability to obtain an abortion. Yeah, I would say it's an undue burden to have to go to the single abortion providing clinic in a large state or even a small state for that matter for a person in a compromised position to do that. But that's just me talking. Let's move on. If it's okay with you, let's move on. LGBTQ, there was a case about that that came up. What was this one? So this was a really interesting case dealing with the Civil Rights Act, the landmark Civil Rights Act of the mid-1960s. And there's Title VII in the Civil Rights Act says you don't get to discriminate in the workplace on account of sex. And the question before the court was, does that include then a prohibition against discrimination based on LGBTQ status? Does that word sex include not just we fired you because you're a woman, but does it also include we fired you because you're gay or because you're trans? And the court said, yes, it does. 
because if we are not going to fire, the example is Jason gets married on Sunday and he marries Jane. His employer is completely fine with it. Jason gets married on Sunday and he marries Jerome. His employer is not okay with it. And what the court says is that that is that firing is on account of sex, and it's a decision written by one of President Trump's appointees, Justice Neil Gorsuch, and it's joined by Chief Justice John Roberts. And people say, well, this is a, a liberal decision. You're protecting LGBTQ workers. Huge decision because at some point in everybody's life, essentially, they're going to have a job and they want to know if they'll have federal protection. So how do you get a decision that looks like it's a liberal decision written by a conservative member of the court, joined by another conservative member of the court, Chief Justice John Roberts? That's because Justice Neil Gorsuch said, I'm a quote unquote textualist. I just look at the text on the page. I don't look at context. I don't look at anything else when I make my determination for what this statute, the Civil Rights Act, means. And he says, on account of sex includes on account of LGBTQ status in the workplace. And so it's a conservative legal opinion with a liberal practical consequence. So, so interesting how these chips fall and how much you would say power is leveraged over our society in which direction it goes by it can come down to a single Supreme Court justice in many occasions. Fascinating to me. Always, always, always. Uh, DACA. Can we move on to DACA? What's this? Uh, what's this case this year? The, the Dreamers. This applies to the Dreamers. Yeah. So this DACA is a program that was created by President Obama by executive order back in 2012. And what DACA essentially says is people who were brought to this country as minors, uh, people who were illegally brought to this country when they were young, at this point may not remember any other country if they may, haven't gotten into. May not any, even speak their native tongue may not even speak the language from the country that they came from and haven't gotten into any serious legal trouble in our country, that they will have protection from deportation and that they'll be able to get work authorization, that they'll be able to get access to health insurance. This is a really big deal for people because they want to be able to work. They want to be able to obtain health care. And so DACA is really a story of presidents trying to push an agenda and Congress failing them. So President Obama only creates this program by executive order because Congress won't act. And President Obama wanted this as a temporary program. Now, of course, we all know what happened. We still have DACA. President Trump said to Congress when he became president, I'm going to end this program. You better bring some legislation to me. Congress didn't. President Trump tries to unwind DACA. And the question before the Supreme Court is not, is DACA illegal or does President Trump have the power to end DACA? It's, did President Trump try and end DACA the right way? Meaning, did President Trump give sufficient reasons for ending DACA? There's a federal law called the Administrative Procedures Act. It basically says to federal agencies, do your homework. Give us a rational reason. Don't make a decision that's arbitrary and capricious. What the Supreme Court said, again, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, 
joining the liberal moderate wing of the court is President Trump, Trump administration, dot your I's, cross your T's, don't be so sloppy. You can try and end DACA, but not this way. And so it it is, again, a liberal consequence to the decision, but it's not really that liberal of a decision. Dream. <laughs> Dream, 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 dreamers. Anyway, enough of that. Enough of my tomfoolery. So the dreamers get to stay for now until the Trump administration figures out a better way. Well, until the Trump administration figures out a better way. Or let's remind people, when you create these programs, we envision that they be legislative programs. That this not be a program that was created by an executive order tried to be repealed by another president, that Congress owes it to the country to say, here's where we stand on immigration. We have millions of people in this country who are depending on what happens to this executive order, what happens in the Supreme Court. We have to give people who live in our country some certainty. And so at this point, yes, the ball is in the Trump administration's court, but it also really is in Congress's court. Congress do something. Yeah, yep. That's the lawmaking body. That's what they're supposed to do. God forbid they do what we put them there to do. Uh, let's move on. Religion. There are a trio of cases that had to do with religion in our society. Can you delineate what the deal was with these three? Yeah, so what's the deal? Um, so these cases, and we did a special episode on some of the religion cases, which if people want more, I'll refer them to that episode. Yes, and yes, basically yes. Please do. Yes, yes. Plug, plug, plug. So there are three big religion cases that the court decided. Two of them deal with constitutional interpretation. One of them deals with a statute. So the first one is called the Espinoza case. It's about a Montana school scholarship program, where Montana creates this program where if you as a taxpayer donate to a group that provides scholarships to kids in need, you get a tax credit. There's a weird long and winding road to the Supreme Court, but essentially Montana, like I believe 37 other states, has something in their state constitution that says you cannot provide public funds to aid religious schools. Now, of course, this program would have provided public funds to aid religious schools. There are three parents, who, three mothers, who say, we want to use these public funds to send our kids to religious schools. If you don't let us do that, you're discriminating against us. The court, as I said, long and winding road, finally gets to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, yes, you're right. If you have a publicly funded scholarship program, you have to provide the same funding for secular schools and religious schools. Otherwise, you're discriminating against parents and families who want to use a religious school, and you're discriminating against the religious schools. Now, this is big. This was not our previous understanding of what the freedom of religion protected, and particularly what the Establishment Clause protected. So very briefly, the First Amendment basically says the government can't intrude on your ability to practice your religion, and the government shouldn't create a state religion. And in this case, 
we've always understood that there should be a separation between church and state. We've understood that public funds should not go to support religion because it actually waters down religion if the government gets too involved. This is a change. The court seems to be saying here, if you have a public funding program and you have, for instance, a scholarship and some of, that, some of those funds can go to a secular school, you're discriminating on the basis of religion if you don't also allow some funds to go to religious schools. So that's, that's a big one, and it's a change from what we previously understood. Keep Interesting going. stuff. Yes, jump right in. What's next? So there's another case dealing with religion and schools. This is called Our Lady of Guadalupe. In this case, it dealt with two Catholic school teachers, and both claimed that they were fired in violation of anti-discrimination laws. One said, I was fired because of my age. Another said, I was fired because I said I'm undergoing breast cancer treatment. And in both cases, they wanted to sue their schools. What the court says is, you cannot sue your schools. You're not protected under federal anti-discrimination laws because the schools have a First Amendment right to determine who they want teaching the faith. And there's something called the ministerial exception. And basically, these teachers, even though they're not ministers, the court said fell within the ministerial exception, which again, gives religious institutions, in this case schools, the power to say, we don't want, you know, fill in the blank, women teaching our faith. Potentially, we don't want black people teaching our faith. That it's a carve out that these religious schools do not have to adhere to normal anti-discrimination laws because the government's saying, I can't step in and tell you who should be teaching the religious faith. And so that's the second case. Big implications for teachers who work at religious schools. And, you know, I think most of us can agree we don't want to step in and tell a church or a mosque or a temple, here here are the people that you can use to teach your faith. But the tension is most people or many people also think that you should have some protection from discrimination if you're working at a religious school. And this decision wipes away much of those protections. And that basically leads us to the last case dealing with religion. This is a different area completely. This case is called Little Sisters. It deals with uh, the Affordable Care Act, which some people call Obamacare. Basically, the Affordable Care Act says to employers of a certain size, you have to provide certain uh, preventative care to women. The regulations say preventative care includes access to contraception and, in fact, free access to contraception. But there's exceptions to that rule for certain small religious employers who say it's against the teaching of my faith to have to provide a health insurance program that includes free contraception. Now, the question before the Supreme Court was, can the Trump administration expand that exception so that more employers say, I don't have to provide cost-free contraception to my employees? And the answer is yes. Now the exception is so big that it arguably might swallow the rule. What's the exception now? Employers who have a strongly held religious objection 
or a sincere moral objection to providing their employees with a health plan that gives them contraception. So again, big implication for people's real lives. There are a lot of women, at least tens of thousands of women, potentially 125,000, who depend on their health insurance programs for access to contraception. Now their employers can say, sorry, we're opting out. Oh, boy. (laughs) Where do we go from here? Okay, so that sounds simple and fun. Uh, Executive power. (laughs) I'm using the term fun very, very loosely. Uh, Executive power. What changed in terms of this case? CFPB. What are those uh, what are those initials for? Yes. So back after the 2008 recession, uh, we decided that we needed to do something to protect consumers from let's say, unfair or predatory lending practices or business practices. Credit card fees and that kind of thing, right? That's what this is? Credit card fees, mortgages, other types of loans. This really does affect almost every American in some, at least in some way. So Congress uh, creates a sweeping financial overhaul in legislation called Dodd-Frank. As part of Dodd-Frank... There's an agency that's created, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's supposed to do exactly what the name says. For once in government, it does what it says it's going to do, or at least supposed to. (laughs) Well, the name is what it's intended to do. And the idea is that this agency should have some independence from the president. Because um, let's say the agency was looking into predatory lending practices by one of the president's biggest donors – or, and I'm not talking just about President Trump. This was created during President Obama. Because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has broad powers and one director, Congress created a structure where the president could only fire the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for cause, meaning the president has to say, basically, you're not doing your job well, and that's why I'm firing you. The question before the court was, does the president have to be able to have the power to say, I'm firing you at will, meaning we legally can't force the president to point to a reason? And based on separation of powers concerns, the court said that's right, meaning we cannot create an agency, an executive agency, where you have a director that can only be fired for cause. You have to have a situation where the president can fire the director of that agency at will. What does this mean for the real world? When Congress creates these executive agencies, it will be harder to make them independent from the president. It provides, again, it's part of the march of more power for the executive. And it is part of something that we should devote a different episode to, which is a conservative's desire to dismantle the administrative state, meaning all of these executive agencies that have a lot of power and actually create a lot of law. Conservatives aren't a fan of these agencies, and so this is part of watering them down. The war of oversight. So the director of the CFPB now serves at the pleasure of the king. Can be dismissed without cause for any time for for wearing a triple or a double-breasted suit as opposed to a single-breasted suit, for wearing a wide tie or skinny tie for wearing uh, pearls 
you know, could be a woman. Who knows? Or it could be a guy who wears pearls. Who knows? Could be anything. It's in Brave New World. Uh, now, for your to wrap things up, for uh, your favorite topic and mine, Donald John Trump and his financials. What uh, what happened here? Two cases had to deal with this, and how did that play out? So the first case deals with a New York investigation into whether or not hush money payments, payments made to women who claimed that they had affairs with Donald Trump, actually violated state laws. And these issues came to the forefront after Michael Cohen's testimony before Congress, where he basically said to Congress, yeah, when we paid these women off, we might have violated some state laws. So we have a state prosecutor and a state grand jury who say, in order to investigate, we need the Trump financial documents. So they subpoena not the president, but the president's accountants and lenders and say, provide us with this information. President Trump intervenes and he says, you can't get this information. And that's because I'm the president and I'm not immune only from prosecution and indictment. I'm immune from being part of an investigation. And the Supreme Court says no. In a 72 ruling, they say no person is above the law. The president is not king. And you can fight the subpoenas just like anybody else, but just because you're in the Oval Office doesn't mean that a subpoena asking for your personal financial information, it automatically cannot be served. And that case was a loss for the president, but because grand juries operate in secret, there's no indication that we will see these financial records soon, if ever. And so should we turn to the congressional cases? But it wasn't quite that simple because the other case that revolves around Trump's financials kind of muddied the waters a little bit. Can you clear that up in as much as that's possible? Yeah. So I'm happy to give clarity to how much mud there is. So the other cases actually dealt with three different congressional committees that, again, subpoenaed the president's accountants or lenders asking for financial information. None of these subpoenas went to the president. None of these subpoenas were about any official White House documents. They were So there's no question, there's no issue that there could be executive privilege or national security. All of these are private financial documents. And so in one case, the congressional committee says, we need to check and see if federal ethics laws are sufficient. And so we need the president's financial documents to make that determination. In another case, the congressional committee, and I think this one stood on firmer ground, said, we're looking into foreign interference of U.S. elections, and we know that there was foreign interference, and we need to look at the president's financial documents to kind of figure out the extent of that foreign interference. What the Supreme Court said in all of those congressional cases is you have to acknowledge that you're talking about the president of the United States. So Congress satisfy a higher burden for that subpoena. And so the court sent those cases back down to the lower courts, essentially saying, Congress, give it another shot. Explain why it's so important that you need this information. And these cases will just take too long to work themselves through the system for us to get this information before the election. Yeah, bottom line is we're just not going to see that information in time before we cast our votes. If uh, Mr. Trump gets a second term, maybe we will see this information. And wouldn't that be interesting to have a sitting, pre- uh, sitting president with uh, some dubious things in his financial past? 
and uh, then all God's children know about it. <laughs> it would be kind of curious to have that happen. May not come to pass, though. May be irrelevant by that time, and uh, we'll just have to see how that plays out. So my question for you, Jessica, as a, as a student of these kinds of things, and I mean you in this case, where would you rank this term in terms of terms? You know, where is this? Was this, uh, uh, and I don't mean in terms of good or bad or who won or who lost. I just mean how interesting was this? How, what do you think the effects on our society will be as a result of this particular term in the Supreme Court? Is this something that's going to change a lot of things as compared to other Supreme Court terms? Or is this something that's kind of a middle of the road in terms of shaking things up? Well, you know, this term, I think, was largely defined by Chief Justice John Roberts. He was in the majority, the vast vast percentage of the time. And what do we take away from this term that we have a chief justice who is, listeners have heard me say a version of this, he's trying to hold the Supreme Court and the integrity of the judiciary together with, you know, shoestrings, chewed gum, rubber bands, uh, paper clips. He's doing everything he can to say, we are not politicians in robes, that we are just going to work every day and we're applying the facts to the law. And I think that's why you see him make decisions that make it look like, one, the court's prior decisions really matter, and two, trying to basically do no harm to the election, trying to stay out of electoral politics as much as they possibly can. So, you know, in terms of what this term means, every term there are decisions that affect millions of people. You know, we talked about the DACA case. If you are a dreamer or a family member or friend of a dreamer, that case has huge implications for you. The case dealing with abortion restrictions in Louisiana, again, huge implications, real implications for real people. And I will say, even though it sounds more esoteric, but cases like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, these executive agencies have lots of power. And think about the Environmental Protection Agency, for instance, and whether or not they can function independent from the president and how Congress can set those up, you know, again, it sounds kind of removed from our daily life, but it really isn't. And so I'm kind of punting except to say it was a weird term because it was interrupted by COVID, but the term was really defined by Chief Justice John Roberts wanting to say, there's one branch of government that's functioning. Don't worry, everybody. And and by decisions, again, as always, that will really deeply affect people. And it seems like Roberts is doing what I would like to have happen, which is when I think about reading about the Supreme Court, you know, when you read or you see any elected representative, it is very, very common to see parentheses D, close parentheses, or parentheses R, or sometimes I, right? A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y or sometimes I. So the Supreme Court justices, we don't have that, even though we know where they they vote more often than not. We know which presidents have put them on the bench or, you know, suggested that they reach the bench pending congressional pr- approval. But we know how they rule by and large. We tend to think of the court being the liberal side of the court, the conservative side of the court, and there's some swing justices in there as well. But we don't have the D and we don't have the R and we don't have the I. They should all be I and it should just not be there at all, which is the whole point. So... I personally hope that Roberts is successful at all that. But before we go, there's one little asterisk here, which is that there was something that happened in the Supreme Court as a result of COVID. People were able to listen in. Can you explain some of that, how that worked out? Because they deliberated or they did some things over the phone or over the Internet. How did that happen? Yeah. So and let's just plug that we have a couple of episodes coming up where we dive into the Supreme Court a little more 
as an institution, we have a great episode coming up with Professor Garrett Epps, another episode with uh, Professor Eric Siegel. So if you love the Supreme Court, uh, there's more to come. And I these episodes, I think, are super interesting because it really does pull back the curtain. And we hear from some people, some other people who have been watching the court for decades and what their impression is of the Supreme Court as an institution. And so, yes, speaking of the Supreme Court as an institution, it is a very, very private institution. If you want to hear oral arguments in the court, you have to, in some cases, stand in line, sleep outside, because the court does not stream oral arguments live, either in terms of video or audio. What changed as a result of COVID is that the court held, as we've said, these live telephonic arguments. And it it changed a couple of things. One, we got to listen in real time, which for me, I'm geeking out here, but it was super interesting. I felt like, a, you know, again, I was on a Supreme, I was on a conference call with the Supreme Court. And it also changed the dynamic because the justices went in order of seniority. And so Chief Justice John Roberts mm-hmm. goes first, then Justice Clarence Thomas, who really, really does not speak in oral arguments very often at all. I mean, let's emphasize a few times a decade. And all of a sudden, you hear Chief Justice John Roberts say, Justice Thomas, and he asks a lot of questions. And that was a revelation for a lot of people who just haven't gotten a lot of insight into his thinking until you see um, until you see his decisions. And so it was much more orderly in that way. And frankly, um, for me, it was actually easier to follow, but you didn't get as much up and back. So usually the justices are talking over each other and they're trying to make a point and they're arguing not just, you know, with the attorneys, but really to themselves. And this, you know, this dynamic changed that a little bit. Right. You think you know a guy and then all of a sudden here comes the (laughs) pandemic and you drop him in a Zoom meeting, just like all the rest of us in all of our interminably long Zoom meetings and the man speaks. Here we go. All of a sudden, he's a chatty Cathy. And, you know, the question will be, does this mean there'll be more transparency in the Supreme Court? And at some point, they have to acquiesce. I just don't know where that point will be. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big sea change. You know, people who are used to doing these kinds of things behind closed doors, all of a sudden are going to have everybody, you know, now we've got the peanut gallery. Everyone's already got an opinion on everything. We hear about it all day long on the socials. And uh, now we're going to, you know, at some point maybe get to hear uh, running commentary play-by-play and a color guy talking about what's going on in the Supreme Court. Oh, and a Perry by Alito. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'd like to thank everyone for sticking with us so far in our uh, our podcast here. I know Jessica would too. And uh, these topics are very, very interesting to me. We hope they're, they're interesting to you as well. We've got a lot of wonderful, wonderful guests coming up. And uh, please do subscribe. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and other fine podcast retailers. So uh, thanks, Jessica. You're the best at this stuff. Oh, I love doing these episodes with your producer, Joe Armstrong. Thank you for passing judgment with us. You can listen to Joe's podcast, Independence Day, at indepthday.com. He's on Instagram at indepthday. Thank you to the listeners. As Joe said, thank you for sticking with us for another episode. We're a new podcast. We've gotten some great positive feedback. We love hearing from you. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We will see you next time. <laughs>